Good evening to you. Well, here you are. You came out. It was blowing out there. And you know what they say about the weather? It always gives you something to talk about. And, uh, and it really does. It's always changing. And that's not even counting global warming. I'm just kidding. I didn't mean to poke you in the eye um, on any of that. Let's turn to the book of Ezekiel tonight. And Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you will be lost tonight uh, without a Bible. So just flag one of these guys coming up the aisles uh, right now, and they'll put a Bible into your hand marked to our passage. Did everybody get a, one of those uh, diagrams, uh, the, Bill McDonald's conception of the vision in Ezekiel uh, chapter 1? Did you get that handout? Anybody not have one at this moment? Okay. You're doomed. Uh, we can, uh, how many others do we have without it here? So we did pretty good, okay. All right, well, we just need one over here. And that'll, that'll, we don't want anybody to be lost at all uh, related to this. And that, uh, this conception of, of that vision is really, really helpful. It's not, I don't think it's exactly perfect, but it, it really helps us to not be completely lost in reading what we'll be looking at uh, this evening. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the 30th year, uh, on the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, that's significant. As I was among the captives, that's significant. By the river Chabar, that's significant. That the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God, that's significant. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, that's significant. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, that's significant. In the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar, that's significant. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there, that's significant. One of the things that in this constitutes kind of Ezekiel's, by the Holy Spirit, his introduction into uh, the book. One of the great things about studying the prophets in the Old Testament is to know a little bit about them and how we come to know them. They really become friends to us, actually, as we see all of uh, the things that they go through and, and as they're revealed to us in the course of the, of the um, of the prophecies and the history of their life. But here it's good to have a little bit of an introduction and Ezekiel recognizes that to kind of set the table for understanding the rest uh, of the book and that, uh, that's important to get our, our bearings. And so we'll spend a few minutes on that uh, tonight. Uh, Ezekiel introduces himself there in verse three. His name means God strengthens or strengthened by God. Uh, it was a great name. Probably his parents had no idea how appropriate that name was going to be. But everything about this guy, just like with Jeremiah and uh, Isaiah, uh, in order for him to do what God called him to do, it was totally going to need the strength of God. We're told in verse 3 that he was a priest, that he was the son of uh, Buzi. And uh, so his father was a priest. As a result, Ezekiel... Uh, would have been in line to serve 
in the temple in Jerusalem uh, as a priest as well. He would have spent his entire life, and he is an adult at this point, and uh, uh, fully, you know, in, uh, approaching and uh, about 30 years of, uh, of age. And uh, so all of his upbringing would have been just this careful preparation and the laying of the foundation within his life from a child on to one day be one of the priests performing all of the ceremonies and sacrifices at the area uh, of the temple. But then we're told again in verse 3 that instead of that, instead of this plan that his parents had for him, instead of the plan that he was looking forward to, uh, he finds himself now among the Jewish captives by the river Chabar in uh, the Babylonian Empire, Babylon itself. And so here he is, he finds himself uh, among the Jewish captives taken from the land of Israel, taken to uh, Babylon uh, before he reached the age of 30. 30 was the age at which uh, a, a man could begin to operate within the office of, of a priest. And uh, he's taken captive instead prior to that age uh, in Jerusalem and uh, taken captive by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and by the Babylonian army during uh, the second of three conquests of Judah and of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar made and then he was taken back into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's first conquest of uh, Jerusalem and uh, Judah took place in 605 uh, BC. And famously, uh, the prophet Daniel was taken captive from Israel to Babylon in that first conquest of the land. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquered the land due to the Jews' rebellion against his rule a second time, uh, eight years later in uh, 597 B.C., and that's when Ezekiel, along with 10,000 other Jews from the city of Jerusalem, were then taken captive as well uh, back into uh, Babylon and taken away from the land. The third conquest of Jerusalem, uh, in which Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, would uh, occur 11 years after that second conquest. And uh, the horror of that conquest, the completeness of it, the devastation of it, is, uh, was all uh, described for us as we studied uh, on the other side of the gospel according to Mark, uh, Jeremiah's prophecy. And then the book of Lamentations, which describes the condition of Jerusalem following that uh, third conquest. It was an utter, utter devastation of the land. They had just pushed Nebuchadnezzar so far that he said, all right, I'm, I'm coming in for the third time to put you people in your place. You don't understand who I am and that I don't have to put up with this nonsense. And he levels everything when he comes in the third, uh, third time. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel the prophet, and uh, both Ezekiel and Daniel, to help us understand how these uh, different people and ministries uh, interweave, both Daniel and Ezekiel would have been raised in Jerusalem uh, under Jeremiah's prophecies. Jeremiah prophesied for a 40-year period uh, for, uh, from the, the uh, devastation, the destruction, ultimate destruction of Jerusalem back 40 years. So uh, in their love for God and their desire to serve God, they would have been very familiar with his ministry and, and with his prophecies. 
But uh, both of them, Daniel and Ezekiel, they're now at the same, same time, they're captives in Babylon. Daniel is uh, a captive to Nebuchadnezzar, and he is uh, kind of serving. He is a slave in the capital city of Babylon, the city of Babylon. And uh, Ezekiel finds himself some 50 miles southeast of the city of Babylon, uh, which is a city called Tel Abib, and uh, we're going to, uh, along the river Chabar. And the, in the word Tel Abib, the name for that, uh, that town, that kind of settlement, it's really kind of a slave encampment uh, that was, uh, was uh, probably built in large part to house the slaves that were coming into Babylon from all over Babylonian uh, empire in order to provide cheap labor for uh, the advancement and, and enrichment of, of the empire. And uh, the word Tel Abib, it means the mound of flood. And the city was uh, probably named after the annual kind of spring floods uh, of, of the river. Uh, this little city was located uh, here on the river Chabar, and, uh, which was really kind of just a gigantic irrigation canal that came off of uh, the Euphrates River. And what this, this uh, river Chabar did is it supplied water to a uh, heavily agricultural area in that part of, of Babylon in order to uh, supply the water for the raising of the crops and the food for Babylon and the, the Babylonian Empire. And so when you have that kind of thing, and of course agriculture is still today, but is mechanizing by the year, in those days it was all just pure labor. And so they would bring these captives into these places. They brought a large number of Jews uh, from uh, Jerusalem, put them in Tel Aviv, and it was kind of a work camp now, a slave camp, where they're going to be involved in uh, producing uh, food for, for, the, for the empire. There's no rec uh, record that uh, Daniel and Ezekiel ever came into contact with, with one another. Ezekiel does mention Daniel uh, several times in this book, but Daniel Daniel uh, never mentions him. They may be, have been uh, very well aware of one another, but uh, maybe didn't fit into Daniel's, uh, uh, Daniel's prophecies. Ezekiel's ministry, as I mentioned, in uh, Babylon, it overlaps the latter years of the, the ministry of Jeremiah in Jerusalem. When he mentions there uh, in verse 1, the, the 30th year, that probably refers to uh, Ezekiel's age at the time that he begins his prophetic ministry, which starts immediately here in this uh, first couple of, of chapters. So he's probably 30 years old when all of this begins to, uh, that's recorded here, begins to happen in his life. He was probably 25 years old when he was taken captive from Jerusalem to uh, Babylon, and, uh, and then all of these events occurred now uh, five years later at the age of 30. And so if he had still been, and, and I think this is significant to realize, if Ezekiel had still been in Jerusalem at this time, he would have been beginning his priestly duties. Uh, for the land of Israel. The priests served from the age of 30 uh, to 50, and, uh, and he would have been starting that ministry. Instead, he, God pulls him into this prophetic ministry that's going to cover a period of 22 years. At the, at the time of the start of 
Ezekiel's ministry is given to us there, verses 1 and 2. In the fifth day of the month, which is the fifth year uh, of the king, of King uh, Jehoiachin's captivity. And so we know from this that Jerusalem's final destruction is still about six years away from the, the date of, of the beginning here of Ezekiel. Ezekiel dates his prophecies very, very specifically. You know, sometimes people will, you'll hear people say, oh, that Bible, it's all just fables and it's all myths and people just have made all that uh, stuff up. And I, I think to myself, I don't know what Bible you're reading. It kind of reads like history to me. Uh, it names days, it names months, it names years, it names kings, it names cities, it names places. It's not a mythology, it's a spiritual history uh, of, of the world, actual events that, that it, it, have happened, and Ezekiel wants us to, to know that. Ezekiel's audience, and this again is important here in verse 1, uh, were the captives, Jewish captives like himself that had settled in into Tel Aviv around uh, the river uh, Chabar. And so here you have uh, 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 Jeremiah. He is prophesying to the still rebellious Jews in the city of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel is prophesying to another section of Jews that are also still rebellious against God, but now uh, they're uh, located in, in Babylon. And, uh, and the reason that Jer Ezekiel has to minister to these Jews that are now in captivity to Babylon is because they considered their being taken captive and taken to Babylon as a temporary setback. Uh, they, the prophets, the false prophets in Jerusalem, you might remember, were still telling all of the people, yes, we've been defeated by uh, Nebuchadnezzar twice, and, uh, but we still have the temple, we still have the sacrifices, we still have the law, and even their uh, uh, secular leaders, their kings were working to establish an alliance with Egypt in order to uh, come out from under the dominion of Babylon. And so these false prophets were saying, yeah, I know it looks bad, but uh, we've still got these things and there's no way that God would ever let the Jewish temple, his temple, fall into the hands of those lousy pagans that are the Babylonians. We may be bad, but we're not as bad as them. But they were worse than the Babylonians uh, because they knew better than to be living the life that, life that they were living. And so they had this false confidence that, that uh, we're going to go back to Jerusalem, Babylon is going to fall, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be uh, defeated, and this is a temporary setback, this time that is going to be spent in Babylon. And you remember that Jeremiah had to send a letter by messengers. All these messengers were sending letters back into uh, Babylon telling the captives, don't settle down, don't build houses, don't have children, you're not going to be there very long, you're going to come back to the land. Jeremiah said, no, you settle down and build those houses and have families and marry and become uh, and reproduce and strengthen your numbers there because you're going to be there for 70 years. And so all these false messages were going on in Babylon. And so God raises a prophet up, Ezekiel, to speak to the Jewish people there uh, the truth in the same way that Jeremiah was in the city uh, of, of Jerusalem. Now, the message and the theme of, 
of the book of Ezekiel in terms of, of the present, and it deals with a kind of a near uh, part of Jewish history and then a far part of Jewish history. It, it spoke as Jeremiah spoke these words to the Jewish people there in, in Babylon. It, it explained to these Jews that were there that their captivity and the destruction of their homeland uh, was going to happen, and it was going to happen because of their rebellion against God. And he makes that clear over and over and over again. But in the latter part of the book, he then uh, begins to bring in a message of hope that will, God will one day restore them back into the land, and uh, and they'll become a new and a godly people, and and uh, a new temple will be there, and they'll worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, and these things that will be fulfilled in the thousand-year reign of Christ at, after his, his second coming in Jerusalem. The book is arranged in, in four main divisions, chapters 1 through 3, uh, give us a, an account of uh, Ezekiel's call into uh, being a prophet, and his commission as a prophet, chapters 4 through 24, uh, are the prophetic messages that, deli- that Ezekiel delivers to the children of Israel concerning the, the destruction that is going to come upon Jerusalem. And then in chapters 25 through, 20, uh, through 32, there's these series of messages, as we've seen in the other major prophets, against the nations that surrounded Jerusalem. They would be judged as well for their sin. Different sins, but it would, they'd still be judged. And then in chapters 33 to 48, uh, there's this message of hope concerning the restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel, the restoration of, uh, of the nation, and, uh, and so the, the, uh, the, that there would be a happy ending to all, all of this. So here in Ezekiel, and you've got Ezekiel at this time in which uh, you put yourself in his shoes, understanding this little bit about him. And you put him yourself in his shoes. 25 years old, all of your life, you're aiming to become a priest. And I mean, it, you dream of it. I, I don't know that a, a carnal Christian or a lukewarm Christian can e- even remotely understand what would have been going on in his heart. He's given his entire life to one day be a priest in Jerusalem. And, and then instead of becoming a priest at the age of 25, he's taken captive into another land. And he's taken captive into another land, not because of his own sin, uh, not because he was ungodly or unfaithful to God, but he, he bears the consequences of the rebellion and the wickedness of the Jewish people at that time as a whole. And I mean, you think about how, uh, how his dream would have been crushed I mean, here this day is coming, it's coming, I'm building toward it. And now when he finally hits the age of 30, right here in this passage, God comes to him when he's 30 years old. And he's got to be thinking about the fact that right now, if I was back in that city, I would be a priest if these people had only kept their heads screwed on straight spiritually and just walked with God in the simple way that he called them to do that. And instead, I'm in this stinking wide spot on the River Chabar in Tel Aviv, way far away from what I ever dreamed my life would be. And you put yourself in his shoes. 
And that's not an easy place to be. And I think it's significant that God comes to him and reveals to him another plan for his life. At the very time that he had to be thinking about how what he thought was the greatest plan for his life had been ruined through no fault of his own, but through the fault of others. And God comes in now and begins to speak to him about another plan that he has for him. And I think it's an interesting thing where I don't know if we were to know each and every one of our stories tonight, but when you're 5, 6, 7, 8, 12, 18, 25 years old, and you look at your life and you say, I think it's going to unfold this way. These are the plans. I've poured my whole life into this plan. I've done everything that I could to advance this plan. And it's a good plan. And it's a godly uh, plan. And then to look at the plans that we had for our life and then sit here tonight and to look and see how close did any of our lives come to what we thought life would be or the plan that we had for our life. And most often our life turns out very different from what we thought it would be or the plans that we have. And one of the things that can happen to us when we find ourselves in that kind of a situation, you can get bitter against other people who messed the whole thing up for us and, and, uh, and, and how this whole thing has gone by the wayside because of decisions other people made that I had no control over. And we can begin to think that our life is ruined, that that plan is gone and with it God's plan for my life. And then God comes in. There's an old, a, a saying within our culture to bloom where you're planted. And that's essentially what God does with Ezekiel. And he says, all of that has happened. And even though your plan, the plan that you thought was going to unfold related to your life, is in the rearview mirror, it's long gone, it is gone. But I still have a plan for your life, in spite of all of those circumstances. And with that, in the moment of like his greatest, perhaps, disappointment in his heart as he meditates on it, God comes in and says, now this is what I'm going to do for you. And when our plans go sideways within our life, even related to our own folly, it doesn't mean that God's plan for our life is done or it's over. God still has a plan. The Bible talks, as we've seen on Romans chapter 12, that, that, uh, that we be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we might know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Every single one of us is here tonight, and, we, and, and in the course of our life, we have a line that goes right across everything that is behind us. We can't change that. We can't change one thing that's in our past. But God says that it, for us as a Christian, in front of this line, going forward, whatever it is that's back there, there is a will for our lives that he describes as being good and acceptable and perfect. And maybe one or two of us need to hear that tonight in terms of uh, the lousy hand that you've... I'm sorry, I was raised by two professional gamblers. So I use these illustrations all of the time, plus my gambling addiction. But I mean, I try to keep that a secret. But no matter what kind of a hand we've been dealt and to realize 
that when these kind of things happen, God is greater than all of that, comes on the scene and says, I'm not done with you at all. And now begins him and leads him into 22 years of ministry that are going to be more exciting and and demanding than anything he would have ever known as a priest. And if he had merely been a priest in the city of Jerusalem, which would have been fine if that was God's plan for his life, there would be no book of Ezekiel uh, in the Bible. Now, God knows how to overcome all of, all of these kind of, uh, of, of things. And so here is the vision in verse 4, uh, just before we close in prayer. No, just kidding. Uh, the vision that he's given here uh, of the glory uh, of the Lord. And this is where your handout is going to be uh, very, very helpful in, try, in, in referencing it. And basically what he's describing in chapter 1 is a vision of the Lord on a throne, his throne being borne by uh, four angels. And it's kind of a picture of, of heaven, and it's, uh, and it's an unusual thing, but we'll take a look at it. And uh, by the time we're done, you'll possess absolute clarity uh, related to it. I'm just kidding. So the Lord uh, gives him this vision. Basically, it gives Ezekiel a vision of himself. And, uh, and Isaiah began his ministry in exactly the, the, the same way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe uh, filled the temple. And so God gives Ezekiel now this vision of himself before he ever gives him uh, a message to, to, uh, to carry. And the, the, the vision, is, it's an odd one, as we'll, as, as we'll see it, hard to understand in some respects, but what, it, what the vision emphasizes is the fact that God is in control of the universe. And, and, the, and the, the, the vision of God here, of His glory, really, is so awesome. He collapses at the end of it in the same way that the Apostle John collapsed upon seeing Jesus in His glory in the Revelation. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to read it and think, oh boy, okay, where can I get a coffee after the service? It's another thing to have, for him to have lived it and just collapsed, unable to stand as a result of seeing the vision. But it was a vision of the glory of God. And here is Ezekiel, and here he's going to minister to people. So this is way beyond his life and him having perspective about his life and his circumstances. He's bringing a perspective from God to God's people and to the whole world. And that is that God is bigger than Babylon. He is bigger than the Babylonian uh, armies. He is bigger than even the rebellion of the Jewish people that he rules in, in the universe. And it speaks of his power, it speaks of his authority, it speaks of his, his sovereignty, his providence, which means that uh, to me that he rules over all and he overrules all for his glory. And, and Ezekiel needs to begin his ministry with this vision of God. And I, I think it's very, very important. It's important that in anything that God calls us to, but I think in a, if somebody's being called certainly to be a pastor, to be called a prophet as Ezekiel was, but really in anything where we're ministering the Word of God, that there needs to be not only a working knowledge of the Word of God, but a vision of God. 
a vision of His greatness, a vision of His power, because what He calls us to do in in these realms, there's a great price that's paid there. There's going to be great opposition on the physical realm, in the spiritual realm. And and we have to know God, know Him well, know Him by experience, know Him in a deep personal relationship because just knowing about Him in our noggin from the Word of God, but it hasn't gone into our relationship with Him, we will never make it. And so the necessity of a vision of God and a vision that God is calling me to do something impossible for me, but it is not impossible for Him. And this is what Ezekiel needed to know. And so God gave him a vision of his, uh, of his, his glory to drive home these, uh, these, these great truths. And then I looked and behold, as he describes the vision itself now, and, uh, and, he, and it, 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 behold, a whirlwind. And so you've got this gigantic kind of uh, 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 windstorm that is going on that he, that he sees. So there's this whirlwind, he says, and it was coming out of the north. And significantly, the Babylonian army was going to invade Israel once again from the north. And here is the recognition that when the Babylonian army conquered Jerusalem a third time, it wasn't just them. It was God in His glory, God in His judgment, bringing them as an instrument of His judgment uh, to do this refining, chastening work among His people. So he sees this gigantic windstorm that's coming out of, of the north, and there's a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. So he sees this windstorm, and then if you've ever seen, you know, we have the advantage of having seen a movie or two perhaps uh, that they didn't have uh, 3,000 years ago, but you see the, the explosion of an atomic bomb or an explosion of, of uh, petrol or something like that, and you see how it explodes, but then the explosion is, is uh, building out upon itself. It's engulfing itself, and this is the kind of flame and and, uh, uh, and, and fire that he sees raging coming out of the windstorm. And the brightness of, uh, was all around it and, it, and, and radiating out of its mist, like mitts like the color of amber, which on the color spectrum is uh, some combination of orange and yellow. In the midst of all of this, this, this radiate, radiating of this color coming out of the midst uh, of the fire. And so this incredible, uh, awesome kind of thing that is going on and that he sees, and of course all of it, the fire so often in the Scripture speaks of uh, God's holiness and, and the, the judgment now that was going to come upon Judah, uh, not out of some whim on God's part, but coming out of, of, of His holiness. And then with that great thing that got Ezekiel's attention and also then from within it as he's watching all of this uh, came the likeness of four living creatures. And it's important to recognize and and underline at least in your mind that word likeness because he's going to use the word like or likeness over and over and over again in this vision. He's, He's going to try and describe in human language, the language that he knew, uh, as best as he could, 
but lacking the vocabulary to do it. What he's trying to describe is so otherworldly, such a, uh, the, the spiritual dimension that all, he can't say, well, it's exactly like this in our world or in our culture or in our nation. He's, he says, I can't think of anything that I can use that's a, that's a pinpoint description of this. It's kind of like this. Um, if you... You know, the old illustration of the people trying to describe an elephant, and it kind of depends if you've all blindfolded and you touch it on its trunk or you touch it on its ears or you touch it on its side and, and begin to, to, to describe, uh, it, it's hard to describe it. I, I, Tom and I had the privilege of going uh, to India once, and way back when, and India has modernized a lot, but one of the things that was hard in coming, uh, visiting India, and then coming back to the United States, and people saying, what was it like? And you couldn't say, well, it was just like this here. There were, there's, at that point in time, there was nothing in India that was like the United States, and nothing about the United States that was like India. All you could say is that it was kind of like this, and do the description the best that you can. And to realize that this is exactly what, I mean, the awesomeness of the spiritual realm and the angelic beings that he is seeing here. And he says, I don't have the vocabulary. I don't have a point of reference with which to accurately describe it to you. I love it. I get a little excited about uh, all of this. We're going to uh, see these creatures one, uh, one day. So he, he says, from within uh, this great explosion and fire and awesomeness uh, came the likeness of four uh, living creatures. And uh, this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. And their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of uh, calves' feet. They sparkled like uh, the color of burnished bronze. Uh, the hands of, uh, of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. And as for the likeness of their faces, each one of them uh, had a face like a man. Each of the four had a face of a lion uh, on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. Each of the four had the face of an eagle. So, you know, we got like one face and then we got some... Uh, uh, undeveloped property, uh, by and large. Uh, they had a, one of these on each, each side of, of the head. And thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward, two wings uh, of each one touched one another, and two covered uh, their bodies. And so uh, the, the four living creatures that emerged from this, uh, this great windstorm, a fiery windstorm, uh, we know, as we'll see a little bit later in chapter 10, where they're clearly dif uh, 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 defined as angels, and as a very specific angel, and that is as being cherubim. In the Scripture, uh, cherubim are always depicted as guarding something that is holy, something that is, is sacred. And their responsibility was always to prevent anything unholy from coming into the presence uh, of the Lord. 
after the fall of Adam and Eve in the, the Garden of, uh, of Eden. It was cherubim who were stationed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to guard against them uh, re-entering as sinful human beings into the presence of the Lord. Uh, the likeness of cherubim were embroidered into the curtain uh, of the tabernacle. Uh, that was to guard the Holy of Holies against uh, unauthorized entrance from, from the holy place into uh, the Holy of Holies. And they represented that they are there to guard, that nothing unholy is to pass uh, beyond them. Within the Holy of Holies itself, you might remember concerning the Ark of the Covenant, that there was a mercy seat on the top of that Ark of the Covenant. And there are two cherubim that are are represented on there. And each one of them uh, faces one another on the cherubim uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. And their wings go forward and they touch on that mercy seat. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And here they are represented as protecting the holiness of God from uh, contact with with what it is uh, that is holy. And and the reason that all of these things were done in terms of the imagery within the the tabernacle and then ultimately with the temple and the reason that these cherubim were represented within the linens were to communicate to the people, even under the old covenant, certainly to us under the new covenant, to, to remind them of the incredibly active uh, activity of angels around that entire scene. And whether the priests or the Levites or anyone uh, saw it at all in the way that Ezekiel is, is seeing it, for them to realize, you do what you're doing on a physical realm, but there's an entire realm here spiritually that involves angels coming and going and doing what they're doing in this very scene and intended to produce an awe within them concerning the holiness of God and the sense of privilege to be a part of anything that's associated uh, with, with the Lord. Now, the, the, uh, the, the, in terms of their appearance, as he describes it there in verses five, 5 through 8, the, he says the likeness of their body was like that of a man. It wasn't exactly, but the best thing he could come up with is it's, it's like a, a human being. And they've got the four faces, the face of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And there's a lots of ideas about what that represents, that uh, it might represent, uh, each of the face represent some aspect of God, whether God's wisdom or His majesty or His power or His swiftness, or that maybe those four faces represent uh, the high, uh, high points, the, uh, the, the pinnacles of, of, of God's uh, creation in terms of the forms of life that he's produced. Man uh, uniquely created in the image of God, the lion being the king of the beast, the ox being chief among the domesticated uh, animals, the eagle chief among the birds of the air. There are others who, and I think this is uh, probably a little bit closer to uh, the truth on things. The Bible says that the, volu- G- uh, the Bible says that the volume of the book testifies uh, of Jesus, and uh, and so uh, each, each uh, the, the four faces are, can speak of the four main themes of the four gospels. And so you have Matthew, who, who has is their foc- his focus in that gospel is is a Jewish focus and presenting Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, 
Mark emphasizes Jesus as the ox or as the servant. Uh, Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. John emphasizes the deity of Jesus, perhaps represented uh, by, by the eagle. We won't solve it, but it's, it's food for thought. He describes their wings there in verse 6. Each of them has four wings, and with one set of wings they cover their bodies. There's a, a, um, a, a modesty, a holiness even with, with the angels in, in that way. And then with a second set of wings that they have, they stretch them out in order, as you see in the picture here, where they make contact with the angel who is a part of the other corner of this uh, great uh, uh, procession of, uh, of this throne and, 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 and touching, kind of, pr- uh, again, uh, pr- uh, producing a protective, uh, again, cherubim being protective of the holiness of God, this kind of protective square around uh, the throne uh, of, uh, of, of God. In verse 7, it's interesting related to their legs that they're straight uh, without uh, joints. Um, so I kind of like my knees; they're handy, uh, but the but they don't need them. Uh, the, these angels they they do not move as he, as they're described here on the basis of walking someplace, and so they don't need their legs to be functional in the way that we are. They they are simply directed uh, in what direction to go, and they move by virtue of of their wings. And so here you have uh, these, these legs uh, and, uh, and without joints, unneeded for movement, uh, and their feet, verse 7, like the soles of calves' feet, so kind of hooved and rounded, uh, sparkled. They sparkled like a polished uh, 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 bronze. Uh, concerning their hands, they have had hands uh, of a man under their wings. And so I, I don't know that it's in this picture, but here they got uh, two wings covering themselves. They got two wings going out like this. And then if you were to look closely, there would be a human hand uh, right here. Uh, pretty wild, these angelic beings that are around. I mean, I, I, uh, I've, I've, watched, uh, I've watched all the Star Wars movies. And uh, um, you'll forgive me for that. Uh, but I... I like Lord of the Rings better, but I, I watch Star Wars because I have to stay relevant and w- with the culture as a, as a Bible teacher. But no, I watch it, but I'm not into it like some people are into it. Oh my. I mean, they know all of the planets and every character and all. So for me, it's just eye candy. Oh, look at that ship and what it can do. And look what R2-D2 can do. And and then they, you know, they land in these cities and you've got these goofy creations that George Lucas has come up with. He's got nothing on what we're going to see one day when we get into heaven and see these angels, the diversity of it. I mean, it's going to be absolutely uh, awesome. And so, uh, the, uh, the, just the beauty, he's trying to explain him, the term likeness used over, uh, over and over again, you know, in his, his attempt to describe how, uh, how incredible these, these, uh, these angelic beings uh, are. And here, again, what Ezekiel is doing for us here in, in an Old Testament kind of context, but we see uh, even greater definition of it in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, is it, one of the things that it does is it makes us aware of this entire spiritual realm that operates around us. 
And it's an incredible realm. I mean, I deal, God's never given me, I've never seen an angel that I've been uh, aware of. I've never had a vision of anything like this. I see the descriptions in the Bible, and they're enough for me, apparently, because God hasn't given me any, any more related to that. But it is good to stop and to realize that around the governments of men, around Babylon, around the United States of America or Russia or whoever is China or whoever's flexing their muscles at any particular point in time in human history. That's just the physical realm. That's nothing. That's nothing. The real realm where the real power is, where the real activity is going on is in the spiritual realm and it is as active in that realm on a daily basis as the physical realm is active in its own way. And we'll all Monday, you know, get into the cars and head to work and many of you commute and all of that. And you say, this is a pretty active scene on planet Earth. It's just as active in the spiritual realm. And, uh, and I, for one, am always uh, like to be made aware of, of that, that spiritual realm and, uh, and to, to, to think about just what it is that's going on all around us. He goes on in verse 12 and continues to describe these cherubim and their activity. And each one went straight forward. So when they, they, they moved, uh, they would go straight forward. Now, uh, if you and I want to change directions, we got to turn around. Why? We just got one face. When you got a face on each side of your head, you don't have to turn around to see anything or to go in another direction. And, and so they move in an entirely different way. They just went forward and they went wherever the Spirit wanted them to go and they did not turn uh, when they went. And the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. So here's on top of everything else, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. Here's the angels, and then here's this fire that's moving uh, in the midst of all of them. The fire was bright, and then out of the fire went lightning. I don't know how you bring lightning out of fire, but uh, that's what's going on in this scene. I mean, it's a really, really uh, uh, awesome. And, he, and, he, uh, and, and the living creatures, uh, in verse 14, uh, ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of, uh, of lightning. And so he's describing their movements and, and how they go. They don't turn. They just go in this direction, this direction. It's fast. It's immediate like this. And it's probably this description of these, these angels here and in this uh, section of Ezekiel chapter 1 that get uh, UFOologists all excited. And uh, there's some people that get into that a lot. Is there life on other planets and this kind of thing? Um, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about the one that we're, I, uh, the planet I'm on at the moment, so I can't really be worrying about where uh, there might be other life or whatever. But those kind of discussions, if that's something that's, that you love to have with your friends and all, good. Uh, send me a tape of it and I'll throw it away. I don't have a big interest, uh, a big interest in it, but you, you can. But uh, UFOologists, they look at it and they'll try and build a case, sometimes Christians that are into this kind of thing, and say, you know, that, uh, listen, UFOs are even in the Bible. And they'll, they'll turn to this passage and they look at the movements of the, uh, of the angels and of this, 
this chariot, throne chariot of God, and they'll say, look at it, it sounds exactly like uh, a UFO. And so they get uh, into uh, to all, all of that. And, uh, and, and I don't know anything about all of that except that if somebody were to see uh, something like this, they're not seeing a UFO. I'm not saying that this is a, these are UFOs, not UFOs, or what I am saying. They're not UFOs. Um, if you saw something like this, you're not seeing a UFO. You are seeing the, uh, uh, the, a manifestation of the spiritual realm uh, that, it, that is happening. The problem you have to be careful with is that there are a lot of fallen angels as, as well that are just as awesome in their own way. And so just because, wow, I saw some, you know, there's this UFO or this kind of supernatural experience, and so this, whatever comes out of it must be true or whatever, you know, a, a nonsense at all. But this isn't extraterrestrials in any way. This isn't what Ezekiel is talking about at all. He's talking about, uh, talking about angels and that entire angelic realm. And then in uh, verse 15, now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was uh, on the earth beside each living creature uh, with its four faces. So each of the four creatures has a wheel associated with it. And then the appearance of the wheels and their workings was uh, like the color of beryl. And all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And so somehow he's describing the wheels and how uh, they operate in kind of like a, what, uh, like a ball bearing kind of, of fashion. They can roll in any, any direction instantly, the wheels that are associated with uh, this chariot of the glory uh, of God. And when they moved, they went forward or toward any uh, one of the four directions. They did not turn aside uh, when they went. And as for the rims of these wheels, they were so high, I mean, so big. Uh, he says they were awesome. And, uh, and their rims were full of eyes all around in front of them. So you've got these, these wheels and they've got eyes on them. There's a living aspect related to them, maybe speaking of the omniscience of God, that He sees everything, that He, that he knows uh, everything. And when the living creatures uh, went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels uh, were lifted up. And so the chariot could operate on the ground. It could operate uh, in, in the air. It, it, it could move. And, uh, and th that's the place that the wheels played in all of this. And wherever the Spirit wanted to go, uh, they went. Because there the Spirit went, and the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And uh, when those went, uh, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And so here you have uh, the, the movement of this th uh, throne chariot of God. Is, it is occurring as it talks about spirit here. I believe that's a reference to uh, the, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God upon the throne directing them in terms of going in this direction and that direction. And, uh, and, and so this interaction of, 
of the, the creator with the creation for this entire scene. And remember, angels are created uh, beings. But the angels weren't moving. The cherubim weren't moving on, on their own. They, they received intelligence in some way uh, from God on the throne and, and then moved accordingly. And the likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creature was like the color of awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And so you see in your picture the firmament. It is this great sea of glass or this sea of crystal. And you go into the book of Revelation and you realize that on that heavenly scene there is this sea of glass, this crystal upon which the throne of God is and the presence of uh, of God is. And so you've got all of this angelic dimension that is operating down here, and then you've got this, uh, this, uh, this sea of glass that is uh, uh, above them that they are transporting, and then the throne carrying the glory of God uh, above that. Again, the picture is very, very helpful. In, in understanding it. And then under the firmament, uh, their wings spread out straight, one toward uh, another. Each one had uh, two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side uh, of the body. They supported uh, this entire uh, sea of glass. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings. And so uh, they used one set of wings for movement, and uh, when they began to move, uh, there was a tremendous noise associated with it, like the noise of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. That's a loud place. Like, uh, and again, you see the like, like, like. He's trying to describe it the best that he can. Like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. And when they uh, stood still, they let down their wings. And so when the angels were not transporting uh, this throne under the direction of God and they stood still, then the angels, uh, the wings came down uh, to their sides. And above the firmament, uh, over their heads, so above this sea of glass, was the likeness of a throne. Again, likeness. He can't describe it exactly. He's using the terms that he, the best that he can. And so there was the likeness of a throne, and then uh, that throne was in appearance like a, a sapphire stone. And uh, on the likeness of the throne, uh, there was a likeness with the appearance of a man uh, high above it, and also from the appearance of his waist uh, and, and upward, I saw, uh, as it were, again a qualification, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around it, and uh, from the appearance of his waist downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with uh, brightness all around. And so he is describing uh, he, what basically what he's probably in, ha, has happening here is what is known in the Old Testament as a theophany or a Christophany. And a Christophany is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in history. Uh, uh, the Lord uh, appeared with Abraham. Jesus did long before his incarnation and being born into the world. He spoke to the Jewish religious leaders and he said, before Abraham, 
I, uh, uh, before Abraham was, I am. He talked about the fact that Abraham uh, saw his day and was glad to see his day. And he said, how can you have spent time with Abraham? You're not even, you know, 50 years old or whatever age they gave to them. And so there are these kind of theophanies or Christophanies, and that's probably what he's, he has run into. And, and, and what he's describing here, and he's very careful because he's not communicating that uh, the God on this throne is exactly like a man uh, or that he saw God. That's why the, all the heavy qualification of the language, the Bible says, no one can see God, that is God the Father, and live. And, and he, he clarifies it for us in, in just a verse or so uh, when he, he declares that what he saw was the glory of God. Not God himself, but he saw merely the glory that, that radiated uh, off of him. But here he has this vision uh, of, of the Lord, given a vision of, of his glory. And then he says, like, again the qualifying uh, word, the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day and uh, that surrounded uh, this throne. And so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. And this was the appearance of the likeness of, and then here it is, the glory of God. And he's describing the glory of God. And for all of whatever we might think of this or try to understand or go, wow. See, I'm a wow person on this stuff. I, 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 some people are so troubled when they don't understand everything about God. I, I'm thrilled over it. Uh, you know, the old saying, God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. I'm glad he's way beyond what I can uh, understand. And that the angelic realm, to say nothing of God himself, is way beyond my understanding. And the glory of God, that this realm exists. And not just to give hope to Ezekiel all these thousands of years ago against all the obstacles that he would face in life when all, uh, the might of Babylon and even the nuttiness of Babylon and Egypt was kind of sucking up all of the oxygen in the air and making everyone terrified that, you know, that, uh, that uh, Babylon or someone else was in control of human history and he's given this glimpse to realize no, no, no nation, no world, no individual is in control of anything. And uh, here, is the, here is the throne that is, is, is never empty. Here is the throne that is above all thrones. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, I don't know how many of you are like uh, royalty people. My, my mother-in-law, is, she, she loved Diana. Uh, the princess in anything having to do with England and whatever parade they're going to have and uh, whoever's going to get a crown put on their head she loves that she'll buy uh, the people magazines uh, two issues before it happening when it happens and afterwards and I get that I, I, I personally I don't have a problem uh, with tradition and, and these kind of traditions that that occur you know on a, on a physical kind of level but you've never seen anything like this on TV in terms of now here now that's a throne I never saw who was on the throne you couldn't you'd have died if you saw it all you can see is his glory like he spoke to Moses all you can see is my backside the glory you can't see me and live Ah, uh, what we're going to see one day and it gives us an, a picture and an image 
You remember uh, the Apostle John, when he, the, the youngest of the apostles, and when he's around with Jesus and they're eating and all, and he's sitting closest to Jesus, they estimate that he's probably not only the youngest, but maybe only 16 years old at the time. And the intimacy that he knows with Jesus. He asks him anything. He, he, he sits close to him. There's no kind of fear or anything like that in, in the relationship. And then when he receives the vision on the Isle of Patmos, that is the revelation, the final book within the Bible, and he sees Jesus in his glory, he is like the scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. He falls down uh, on the ground uh, for his life as dead. And one day, when we enter into that realm as Christians, and uh, we're going to need a new body for it, but to stop and to think, when Jesus cried, uh, prayed on the night before he was crucified, and he prayed to the Father, among many other things, Father, would you restore the glory to me? that I once had in heaven before I came into this world. And this gives us but a glimpse of the kind of glory that He left to come into this world in order to save people like you and me and bring us into a relationship with Him. It is going to be something someday to be in the midst of all of it. And so, uh, Ezekiel's Reaction to it, it's the same as Isaiah had of his vision of the Lord, the Lord Jesus actually, in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, John and the Revelation, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. And so we'll stop there tonight. I'd hope to finish the book, but anyway, this is as far as, as we got. An amazing introduction. Let's stand together and let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for this glimpse into your glory. And we get so excited about the next Apple product or that China landed some kind of a, a space vehicle on the dark side of the moon and all of these things that we think are amazing and are in their own way on a physical level. And, uh, and, and yet, Lord, what goes on all around us on a daily basis in the spiritual realm that would blow our minds if we, we saw it. And Lord, we just bless you tonight for your glory. We bless you for your nature and who you are. And as we see, Lord, not only this, a description not even of you, but just of the glory surrounding your throne, we realize we would never want to stand in that heavenly scene and to stand there Christless, to stand there without His blood covering us, without heaven being our home. And Father, we realize we would never ever want to face You as anything other than our Savior and, and certainly not as our judge. And we thank You tonight for Jesus. We thank You for His willingness to come into this world and to die the death that He died in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins that we can read all of this tonight that we've read without fear and without horror, uh, without trembling ourselves, Lord, but to look at it and to just glory in your greatness. 
We thank You, Father, that Jesus has uh, made us. Uh, you our friend and us Your friend. Thank You for the power of that blood. And Lord, we pray that um, for each and every person that stands here tonight that doesn't know You, that tonight they would just look at all of this and with some pull of Your Holy Spirit on their lives just to come and to know You and to want to be on the right side uh, of this God and to never live a single day, let alone in eternity, on the wrong side of You. Thank You for this time in Your Word tonight, Lord. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.